Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Talia Murdoch, and today I will be exploring the issue of the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion. I was planning on doing this episode a little later on, but with the recent announcement by the Federal Government of Canada to buy the pipeline, I thought I should push it up the list and strike while the iron is hot. This is going to be a two-part series, and in this episode today, I'll be discussing the history of the project and the companies involved, and the arguments for construction of this pipeline. So first up, what is the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Well, Trans Canada is a company that was founded in 1951 to develop the pipeline in order to supply Eastern Canadian markets with natural gas from the West. The company expanded in the 1980s, developing and acquiring pipelines in Argentina, Chile and Malaysia, moving to an international company. In 1985, Trans Mountain suffered their biggest oil spill in the Edmonton area. Up to 10,000 barrels of oil was spilled, with a value of about 270,000 US dollars at the time. Today, that amount of oil is equal to 650,000 US dollars, or 850,000 Canadian dollars, let alone the environmental and community costs that were suffered. Interestingly, the company began to undertake green initiatives at the turn of the century including support for Foothills Research Institute study on grizzly bears and their interactions with linear features, such as the pipeline. They acquired US hydropower assets in New England and constructed the Cardia Wind Farm in Quebec in 2006. Now, whether these actions were reactive to negative press about being a fossil fuels company as global opinion started to change, or whether they were proactive in something that they actually believe in, I still think it's great that they happen. I also find it interesting that they signalled economic change which contradicts the continuation of wanting to expand oil production today in Alberta and BC. In 2011, another contradictory green initiative, the company enters the Canadian solar industry with the development of eight solar power facilities in Ontario. I find it hard to understand what is going on here. Does this company actually care for renewable energy and a green economy? Or are they simply reacting and trying to lower their risk of negative press, trying to lower their risk of becoming obsolete as the world changes? Honestly, I do find it incredibly hard to believe that they do in fact care about the planet and its people. If they did, then they would stop expanding and focus as many resources as possible into transitioning to a clean energy producer. This episode virtually would not exist because there would be no controversy at hand. As of May 2017, TransCanada's net worth was 40.6 billion US dollars. So it isn't like they don't have the capital to make the switch. What about Kinder Morgan? Where do they fit in? Kinder Morgan is the biggest pipeline company in the United States. The founders, Richard Kinder and Bill Morgan, used to be Enron executives. Alarm bells ringing yet? This company bought the pipeline that runs from Edmonton to Burnaby in 2005. This is the pipeline that is wanting to be expanded upon or doubled. In 2012, they put forward their plan to expand the pipeline by twinning the existing one to increase the amount of oil being transported from 300,000 barrels per day to 890,000 barrels per day, almost tripling production a massive 297% capacity increase. Their plan? 
turned the Barad Inlet into a major tar sands oil export facility. So keep that in mind. This oil, this diluted bitumen, is to be exported. It is not to power Canada. So we're now in 2018, six years since their proposal. The additional pipeline is yet to be built. Kinder Morgan originally planned to begin construction in 2017 and have oil and diluted bitumen flowing through the pipeline by December of 2019. It's pretty well clear this project has faced a lot of opposition from the people of British Columbia over the years. In 2014, over 100 people were arrested after camping out in Burnaby to block crews from drilling and surveying the area in relation to the pipeline expansion, with most of the charges, of course, being later dropped. In 2016, the federal Liberal government, headed by the current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, said that this project, among others, will now be assessed in part on the greenhouse gas emissions produced in the extraction and processing of the oil they carry, and not just the impact of the construction itself. Additionally, such projects would have to improve consultations with First Nations. These conditions are economically responsible and force the companies involved to assess the externalities of the project and consider impacts beyond their own. This same year though, the expansion was officially given the federal government stamp of approval. So what happened between then and now that led the exact same government today to want to buy the pipeline for a huge $4.5 billion of taxpayer funds? In the 2017 provincial election, the NDP and Greens formed a minority government. And I mean minority. They hold a one-seat majority in the BC House of Representatives. They are really at the edge here. A key election promise they made was to block the pipeline being built on BC soil, whatever the pushback may be, of which they have held true. This sparked threats of a provincial trade war between BC and Alberta, who would respectively ban the imports of Alberta diluted bitumen and BC wines into their province. Political muscle was flexed. Uncertainty rose. International investors weren't that keen on the pipeline anymore. So the NDP, environmentalists, coastal communities and First Nations continued to stand together in unity against the project. The constant opposition, protesting and lawsuits led Kinder Morgan to suspend non-essential spending on the Trans Mountain expansion. A victory for opponents? It seemed that way at the time by many, but not quite. Just last week, the federal government stated that they would buy the Kinder Morgan pipeline for $4.5 billion to see that it is expanded. Without going into too much legal technicalities, because this is an economics podcast, the federal government is exempt from a lot of lawsuits that this project was facing. So they can just kind of steam ahead and not be faced in court in the same way that a private company or a province would. So that's a bit of the background. I now want to take a look at each side's reasons for either opposing or promoting the construction of this pipeline and the economic costs and benefits of each path. Today's episode, we'll just be looking at the pro-pipeline arguments. Those who su support the expansion argue that it is in the national interest of Canada. 
The expansion is estimated to cost $7.4 billion to construct. This is a massive injection into the Canadian economy. The key argument by supporters is relevant to the number of jobs the project will create in the short term and in the long term as oil production can increase. Now, the multiplier effect is something that should absolutely be considered when understanding the economic benefits this project will bring. The multiplier effect refers to the increase in final income arising from any new injection of spending into an economy. This is because every dollar injected into the economy, so every dollar of that $7.4 billion to construct the pipeline, will be spent again. And this continues as more and more businesses and people are paid. For example... Construction materials will be needed to build a pipeline, so they will be purchased from businesses who will be paid, who will then pay their workers and possibly hire more staff if there is an increased demand for their product. Those workers will then have more income to spend in their community. Someone else will be getting paid. Continues on and on for every facet of production and the overall benefit ends up being higher than the fixed amount spent by the private construction company. In this case, the government, maybe somebody else. We don't actually know yet. Now, in my research, it was tough to find out what the multiplier in Canada is currently estimated to be. There were a lot of different opinions and not a whole lot of concrete evidence. So I'm just going to use the standard response here. We like to assume, just generally, that the multiplier is 1.5. So for every dollar injected, that will turn out to $1.50 in final income. So from this project, the Canadian economy would end up enjoying an $11.1 billion injection, allowing the economy to be stimulated and to grow. Directly related to economic growth is jobs. The federal and Alberta government continue to state that the project will create 15,000 construction jobs initially, which is huge. If this turned out to be true, the economic benefits would be massive. Assuming that every worker is earning the average experienced construction worker wage of $51,000 per year after tax, and we know that there would be people earning much more than that, communities would share upwards of $765 million in income. And remember, this is an average. There would be workers, construction managers, engineers, chemists, earning upward of $100,000 plus. Additionally, Trans Mountain states on its website that the first 20 years of expanded operations will provide $46.7 billion in tax revenue to Canada. That's about $2.3 billion per year. Over the 20 years, $5.7 billion of this would go to BC, $19.4 billion would go to Alberta, and the remaining $21.6 billion will be shared by all of Canada. And this tax revenue is coming from both income tax, company taxes, and resource royalties, which is what the mining company would pay for every barrel of oil that they pull out of the ground. There is a percentage of the profit made that goes back into the country and into the community that has that oil. Now, this type of revenue would give the government the funds to invest in a wide variety of projects. If we just look at current budget, we know that $2.3 billion per year would fund at least 10% of healthcare spending, which is huge, or send over 185,000 children to public school every year. So it can contribute to an already thriving economy, or it can add to it and help it expand. 
whatever way you look at it, it seems really positive. So 15,000 jobs. I did face some caveats in my research. Historically, estimates for construction jobs and their creation have been inaccurate and actual job creation has often been much lower than the original forecast. Additionally, they're quite volatile and the figures seem to change a lot and they change over time as well. It looks like this may also be the case with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Where the 15,000 job creation estimate that is so heavily depended on by those in favour came from is unclear. The federal government are using this, the Alberta government are using this, Kinder Morgan are using this, but where did it actually come from? It's really, really strange. In Kinder Morgan's original application to the National Energy Board, which I will link on our website, they stated that the project will, and this is a direct quote, require over 4,475 direct construction workers in Alberta and BC combined. The peak month is anticipated to be July 2017. 4,475 direct construction workers at its peak. There's quite a big gap between that figure and 15,000. And of these 4,475 jobs, they include environmental, dock, pipeline, pump station and terminal jobs, with pipeline jobs making up the lion's share, as would be expected. Now, there is a fantastic chart within their application to the National Energy Board that shows their job forecasts, and I will share that on the website. I really encourage you to go have a look at it because it is quite alarming. As a whole, across all regions involved, Kinder Morgan forecast that the project would employ an average of 2,616 workers per month over a two-year period. And this was all submitted in 2016. So it's not like much has changed in that time where all of a sudden this project is going to be so much bigger than they originally anticipated. All of their calculations in this application too appear to be incredibly thorough. They take into account the workforce of each area, what percentage of the workforce actually holds the skills that will be required, what is expected to happen to that workforce, including labour gaps, up to 2021. So they have forecast all of that in and come up with this figure. And they have even identified the fact that only, for example, 5% of the workforce in the Fraser Valley region actually has the skills that would be required to build this pipeline. So a lot of labour would be imported, whether it's imported from Canada or whether it's imported internationally. It's not like you can just go and get a job to build this or to work in construction of this project. There's going to be a gap. And this is coming from Kinder Morgan. Seems weird, right? Now they're saying that this 15,000 jobs figure was derived by taking the person years of employment during project development of 58,037. These person years, this figure was provided in a highly discredited report by the Conference Board of Canada. They've taken that and divided it by three years and 10 months. Voila, 15,000 jobs created. But now the project is taking almost four years and it was originally projected to be two years. In addition to this, the number of hours worked in this case would completely blow out their budget of $7.4 billion because labor costs would be upwards of $6 billion 
Now, I don't know what is real and what is not, but this seems like an arbitrary misuse of information to gain support for a controversial project. It's like 15,000 jobs just came out of nowhere and they've reverse engineered it to make it seem like they've done their calculations. And here I'm supposed to be talking about the arguments for, but as you can see, it's pretty slim. The list is not that long. Jobs and growth, but only a small amount of jobs and growth. So on that note, I want to wrap up this episode and thank you all for listening. Next week, I'll be delving into the economic arguments against the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, as well as talking about the opportunity cost of the government investment. A lot of the arguments against are to do with externalities. So I strongly encourage you to go to my first episode, which just goes over the basic theory of externalities. It will really help you understand why this project should not go ahead. You can find me on Twitter at EveryEconomics or visit the network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. For something lighter and fun, why not listen to Comedy Zeitgeist with Doug Vandalay, a podcast where comedians talk about their favourite comedians, released every Tuesday. It's a total blast. Give it a listen. My name is Talia, and this has been Everything Economics. Join me next week for Pipeline vs. People Part 2.